Welcome to this episode of the Formula Podcast. Today, our guest is the author of The Kneeling Man, Lita Nikola-Selecki. Lita, I just have to say, when I picked up this book, I, I thought it was going to be like an interesting story and like some historical context, a good memoir, but I was not expecting what it was. And it was just, I mean, it was a story of, of, your, of your dad and his amazing life. Plus, like you've tied in some of your personal interactions with him. I was really just blown away by the whole thing. And I'm really excited to, I've been looking forward to this for like the last week, like diving into this conversation with you. So I just want to say thanks for taking the time. Thanks for writing like such a great book. And I guess just to kick things off, why? So I, I believe you touched on this in the book. But for those of who haven't read the book yet, why did you decide to write this, this memoir and this story? Yes. And first, I want to say uh, thanks to you for thinking of me and of The Kneeling Man for this excellent podcast. It's a delight to be here to talk to you about it. But the reason that I wrote the book, it really came down to this question of legacy, which was something that came up for me once I started having children. And I, um, at the time uh, that I had the idea to write the book and um, to delve into this uh, story, I was a um, lawyer. I was a litigator down in Houston, Texas. I had already had one son um, and, um, well, actually, no, I'd had two children by this time. I'd, I'd had one and then I was on maternity leave, I believe, for um, the second one. And then, you know, subsequently went back to work part time. But, you know, I had these two children and I'm thinking of, you know, the fact that my father was now a grandfather. Granddaddy Mac is, you know, what his his grandfatherly name is. And I was wondering what I was going to tell my sons about their granddaddy Mac. And I knew that I really didn't know much about him and his life. And in particular, this very big event um, in his life that was also a part of American history. And so it just dawned on me that while I had been perfectly you know, fine with running from the story and kind of living with this silence about my father and um, this, uh, this, uh, you know, hinging event that he was a part of, uh, or at least on the scene for that it wasn't fair to my children to pass down, you know, that that same silence and that sense of kind of trepidation about it. And so that is what led me to embark on um, this um, journey of, of learning and of um, research about my father. Yeah. And I mean, the amount of depth to this story that there is to tell, like just putting all that together must, I mean, you said he sent you. So let me rewind a second. For everyone who hasn't read the book and doesn't know about the book, the the historical event is is your your father was working for the Memphis Police Department. He was, uh, he was undercover with the uh, following the invaders, right? And That's then right. he he ended up being there the day that Martin Luther King, Dr. King Jr. was shot in uh, Memphis. So, and then he was taken, a famous picture was taken. And that's, that's kind of like, the I don't know if it's the main premise of the book, but that's like on the cover of the book. So, man, I, so you wanted to write, you wanted to write this book for, to like, I don't know if it's, is on, not uncover necessarily, but maybe share the story to your family in your way. 
versus them having to kind of wonder or carry that question with them. And it just seems that like, I, don't know, I have so many questions, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> because as it, it's the book starts out with like your relationship with him, and then it kind of goes back in time to his experience. And as you're kind of telling that story, the like his experience growing up, I think a lot of us tend to think that that was like a long time ago, like when segregation and all those things were going on. And then when you read this, you're just like, it really, it really wasn't that long ago. And his experiences, the stuff he went through was just, just very eye opening. And then for him to take the, you know, the path with like the police department that he did, it was just like, I don't know, it just, you can, you tell me, but it just seems like your dad had like, just good fortune. And also just like happenstance happen. I don't know if good fortune is the right word, but he had a lot of happenstance where he was just like at the place when something worked out, like when he was at the academy, the last day or not the academy, the police department, the last day that they were taking applications. And so I just find it fascinating. So what was, so my experience reading this, as you can tell, I'm like, I'm like, whoa, this is nuts. But for you, like you writing it, what was like, what were your, how did you feel about it? Like, what were your thoughts as you're kind of like, putting together this this story what was what was going through your head well in putting together the story i had to have a lot of conversations with my dad i had a lot have a lot of interviews with him um from october 2015 through i think it was february of 2022 so you know a long process a years long process you know of, of talking with him and just kind of unpacking and unpacking and i mean i was awestruck you know kind of like you described just the layers to the story and the events that seemed so uncanny you know things that appeared to happen by happenstance. And yet one happenstance event led to the next happenstance event and the stakes just got higher and higher as he went along. And so I, what I saw emerge in this story was this theme of destiny and kind of, you know, the shadowy hand of fate, I think I, you know, described it as in the narrative. And I think it speaks to how, you know, in every life, you know, we have a series of events that leads from one place to the next. And although we do have, you know, varying amounts of agency in these events, you know, people are making choices each step of the way. Um, and each choice leads to a road that leads to the next set of choices. There does seem to be, you know, beyond that, a sort of uh, providential element, I would say, or, or this element of fate and destiny. Yeah. And it's relevant. It's like, even when I was actually really shocked when there was a chapter two where you, there was somebody that was investigating him. I think they were going to like accuse him of, of being a part of the assassination. And then he was like the, the lawyer that was in Jonestown, which was just like, I like read that and I was like, how is, how is all of this? Like, like it's all history, right? It's history you read about. And then somehow your dad is like connected to all these things, even like not directly, but even secondarily. It's just, uh, it's just fat. Like, I don't know how that happens, but it's very interesting. Yeah. I was actually just blown away when I found out that yes, this, you know, this, this lawyer was planning to show up in this congressional hearing and accuse my father of being complicit in Dr. King's murder. And it just so happened 
that, you know, this person was down in Guyana, <laughs> you know, and was caught up in the whole Jonestown massacre, mm-hmm. which, and I think it really does just kind of show how, you know, history, before history is history, <laughs> you know, it it is the now and it's impacting things either in a primary or secondary way. And I mean, when all this happened, you know, I mean, Jonestown now is, you know, people know what that is. It's part of our kind of collective understanding. But at the time, you know, when it was on the front page of the Washington Post and my dad picks up the, you know, post that morning and sees this headline about this massacre, you know, people didn't know what Jonestown was, you know, for the most part, it wasn't, you know. And so, yeah, I think there are so many moments in the story that are like this. And so I, you know, was constantly amazed as my father is describing his life and, and, all the intersections um, with other histories that um, that take place in this narrative. I, I think it's quite astounding. Yeah, it's it's. I've never I've never really read anything about anyone so connected to every everything like this in this way. I think that's what's one one thing that makes it such a a great read. Like reading the, this his story is being able to connect it to all these events as they take place. And then also how I think it kind of ties into. I did have this question for you because early on you mentioned like your your dad eventually goes on to work for the the CIA, and then you ended up doing internship there. So I wanted so I wanted to know like man, I've, I just have too many questions. I got to keep them in order. <laughs> <laughs> so you so he went on to do that. And then you ended up interning there. Was there some part of your, you could have gone down the same path. It seems like you went into law and everything. You could have done something similar, but it it seems as if you took a bit of a different route. Did your dad's story or like his life impact that decision? I'm sure, I'm sure it helped you like helped you get an internship there at the CIA, but then, you know, yeah, I, I know that's more of a statement than a question, but maybe you can, you can shine some light on that a little bit. Sure. So yeah, back uh, when I interned, they had um, what they called the summer employment program or summer employee program, something like that. Mm -hmm. So that was for the children of the CIA employees. So yeah, but for my father's, you know, working there, I would not have had that job. And yes, I could have gone down that same path that my father went down. At the same time, I was someone who, you know, while I, at this time, you know, because I was in college, I really didn't know that much about my mm-hmm. father's background, even at that point. But I was very much kind of socially aware and kind of plugged into more activist, not that I was plugged into activist movements, because I didn't do much, but I was a sympathizer. You know, I had read about, um, for example, the Black Panthers and Huey Newton, and I admired them. And then growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, as I did, you know, the civil rights movement, so much, you know, happened there. And of course, Dr. King's assassination happened there. And that always felt very present to me. I always grew up with a, a great awareness of, you know, the struggle for equality, you know, that Black people have been engaged in, you know, from the beginning in this country. And so I knew that, you know, the kind of career that I wanted was going to, you know, be something, I I wanted something that would allow me to express that side of myself. And so I kind of thought, you know, 
CIA. It's a great resume builder. It will probably help me get into law school. But I just don't know if I'm really cut out for, you know, national intelligence. I just thought, you know, that's probably not for me. Funny enough, you know, the internships, while I mean, they were just kind of like, you know, a typical federal government internship would be, I'm sure I really enjoyed my time there. And I think, uh, you know, the culture was great. People were friendly. It it probably would have I think I would have been a good fit, you know, looking back. But yes, I think it's it's also kind of interesting that in ways that I wasn't necessarily conscious of, I was following my father's path and also diverging in key ways from his path, you know, not intentionally doing so. But for example, you know, my father was um, a police officer before he went to the CIA. Um, I, at a certain point, was briefly an assistant federal public defender. So on the opposite side of the courtroom from law enforcement. So, you know, we were both kind of in this, you know, uh, world of criminal justice, but on different sides. He spent time in Africa you know, for the government. I spent time in Africa, but, you know, with uh, my husband um, for his corporate job. So, you know, they're just different choices that I made because of, you know, the context in which I grew up and, you know, being a generation later, things that I knew and also privilege that I had that my father didn't have. But again, it, it also kind of speaks to this this idea of fate and destiny in a way. And the fact that I um, wound up being the only person that my father shared his life story with and felt comfortable doing that and you know having the ability to put together the book. I, I feel like everything that I did, you know, from going to law school to having having the life experiences that I had prepared me to be able to tell the story. Yeah. And it gives you a unique perspective too, because you actually have had the experience inside of like that realm a little bit. So you can, whereas somebody like me who has no law experience, no experience in government, I don't think I could tell the story the same way because I don't understand like the nuances, how the systems work, things like that. So it seems like it all worked out. So you were like perfect for for retelling, like for telling his story. Now, I'm sure like putting this whole book together, there there had to have been, like you said, there was the moment with the guy, um, the, the lawyer who died at Jonestown. Were there any other, like what were the moments in the book or maybe when you were reading the, what he sent you like a very large document and then you had to dig through it all? <laughs> Were there any other moments where you were just kind of that really stand out to you that were really impactful that really either were shocking, inspiring, caught you off guard? What were the what were the moments where you were just like, whoa, this is where you had some reaction? I would say his early life. Growing up in Tibbs, Mississippi, born in 1944, one of 12 children, and actually, you know, just his birth story, where he was born so prematurely that the midwife thought that he wasn't going to survive the night. And so, you know, his mother was asleep after this arduous labor, and the midwife took him and wrapped him up in blankets and put him in a bread warmer above the stove in the kitchen just to try to give him a chance, you know, and, and created this makeshift incubator. And she gave him a name because she said, you know, no baby should die without a name. And so, you know, just the fact that he survived 
as a preemie, you know, black child in Jim Crow, Mississippi with, you know, no access really, you know, to uh, decent health care. I was very much blown away by that. And I just kind of thought, you know, to come into the world in that way, you know, to have your life begin in such a tenuous way, you know, to the point where the midwife named you because she didn't think you were going to live. That to me seems to be a life that is going to, um, it seems like a life that is is touched by fate. Yeah. I can't even imagine like being in that room when that, I mean, I can't, I'm sure you've thought of this, but have somebody having a child and then putting them on top of like a, yeah, just to keep them warm. It's like, it's, it just blows, blows your mind to even think about that. And then, as you said, he had like that was a really tough time to grow up. As I mean, I'm I'm sure as a family of you said a family of twelve, and then and then in Jim Crow, Mississippi, that just had to be. I mean, that I don't think people today could even fathom like how how difficult that probably was and how challenging that probably was. Exactly. I mean, when people think about you know segregation and you know the whites only <laughs> water fountains and things. People tend to think of it as though it's, you know, ancient history. It is really not. It's, I am one generation removed from that. Both of my parents lived under, you know, legal segregation. They attended segregated schools. And um, I mean, even, you know, me, my generation, I remember um, in high school where at the beginning of the year, because of a um, federal court decision, you know, desegregating the schools and creating busing, every year they had to tally up the racial makeup of the class to make sure that the schools were really desegregating, you know, pursuant to the court order. And so, you know, we would have to go through this survey and the teacher would ask, okay, you know, now everyone who is white, raise your hand. <laughs> and they would do, you know, a count of hands. And then, you know, all the black students, you know, if you're black, raise your hand. And so, I mean, that is in my personal experience. And so, so crazy. this is not long ago. Yes. I mean, we were doing this, I'm, I'm visiting my family right now and we we're doing like the, it's not ancestry.com, but it's something like that where you kind of like break out your, your like family tree and everything. And it's like these events that we're talking about, like Jim Crow segregation, all that, like even during like your, your dad's time. And when he was born, you said 44, that's not, that's not that long ago. Like you can, it's uh, and I think that, and we could, I mean, we can have a whole conversation about that and like progress and things because I, I do feel like, you know, you read, um, oh, you even referenced her in the book, Maya Angelou. She, her book is her really famous one. Well, I can't think of it. It's, it's got the, it has the bird on the front. Um, oh, I know why the bird, the caged bird sings. Yes. Thank you. Yes. And if you read like her story as a child and then, and then like your dad's childhood, and you realize, you know, growing up, I grew up in a town in the Midwest of like 2,000 people, and there's like nobody here. <laughs> so it's very small, very empty. And, you know, I think when you read these accounts, it really changes your perspective on things. It's like you're almost seeing things through somebody else's lens and their experiences. And you're just like, wow, this is, it's just like crazy to me <laughs> that like people, people were treated this way, right? And, and that these things happened. Um, and it's, I just think you do a really good job of sharing it in a way that's like, you're not really, you do it in a way that's makes you feel like you're almost there and you're experiencing it, but you're, you're, it's not like, um, 
I feel like you're kind of left to decide like what you think of it on your own. You're not like you should be mad because this happened. It's more like this is what happened and that's it. Right. And it was really important to me not to write something that felt didactic or, you know, this is an outrage, you know. Yes. I just want to lay it out, you know, and mm-hmm. let the reader walk through the story, you know, as you said, and, and, and experience, in a sense, the events. And, and I think it's really important at a time, you know, now where uh, you have folks who are banning books. They yeah. want to limit access, uh, you know, that children and even adults have to these these stories. And I, I think it's ne- important. It's it's more important than ever that we do have these narratives, that we share these narratives, because that's the only way really to get folks to, you know, have an understanding of other people's experiences and have that empathy. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's so important today as well as any other. I mean, it seems like with how things have been, like with social media, you you basically like you have your interests, you have things you're into, or whatever. So you just get fed more and more of that context or that worldview. I think it's important to always, you know, whether it's what reading, watching. I just had um, just I did an interview over was it over the weekend or last week with the woman who made a documentary on Syrian refugees called Batata. Um, and she was making a film about potato farmers and then the Syrian revolution happened. And so it turned into the story of a, of a refugee family. And I think so like consuming things like that, even though like I'm not Syrian and I don't have those experiences, it opens up your mind to like a different perspective. You have more empathy. You can be like, well, maybe just cause I haven't experienced it. I doesn't mean it doesn't exist or I shouldn't, shouldn't do something to help. Or, or sh- I shouldn't limit that information at the very least to being shared. And I really hope nobody bans your book. I think I, I feel like it's kind of an almost an honor at this point to have it banned. But at the same time, it's like you know what I mean, where it's like if they thought it was that disruptive that they wanted to limit telling of it, it just seems a little silly. <laughs> like kind yeah. of like well. <laughs> Exactly. I'm trying to slide into some curricula, hopefully. You know, actually, I'm working on an event with a, a high school. And so I'm hoping to, you know, talk to some students in the new year. But I would like to get some events like that before, you know, I mean, I just think that it's just not on the radar screens of the banners yet. So yeah. I'm trying to do as much as I can. <laughs> to, to, to get on their radar. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. So I, I, when you're when you're putting together when you were putting together this story, what was that process like for you? Because it sounded like you you kind of got the notes from from your dad. You kind of started putting the story together. Plus, you're tying in your own experiences as you were. Like I thought the the, the part where he went and met with um, can't remember the first guy's name, Mr. Young. Oh, Andrew um, Young, yes, yes. That I thought that was just like you know, I felt like you were because you're. Kind of, I loved how you shifted between the past and the present when you were writing it and it felt like you were in the room kind of seeing them interact with each other which was very cool so my question in the process of putting this story together like what was that process like for you it was um it was a long (laughs) process and it was i mean i definitely went into it uh, with some trepidation with some fear because i didn't know what i didn't know i didn't know what i was you know, potentially going to find out. And then there were just some basic things that I didn't know. And so, you know, as you alluded to, I um, I started off with a document from my dad. This was all kicked off by a phone conversation that he and I had when I was working part-time, you know, down in Houston. And I just called him up and I was pretty much, you know, committed to, you know, moving 
beginning this project and moving it forward. And so, you know, having this very awkward phone conversation with him, like, hey, dad, you know, how you doing? Yeah, fine. Hey, you know, we never talked about Dr. King's assassination. <laughs> and he's kind of like, okay. <laughs> and um, so he told me that what he would do is he would put together some notes and he would send me those notes and I should read them and then we would go from there. And shortly after we had that conversation, he emailed me a Word document, 17-page document, career font, with, you know, his story. And so, you know, I get this email and I'm like, okay, here we go, you know, and I start reading. And I didn't get more than three pages into that document before I decided... I'm not ready to do this. And the reason was because, you know, well, first of all, he started off with this uh, preamble that was almost like boilerplate. And um, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, I have this statement at the beginning of my book, you know, about how, you know, this information has been reviewed by the Central Intelligence Agency to prevent the disclosure of classified material. Well, his notes began with this preamble that, you know, he would be honest and forthcoming, but he would not betray the oath that he took and he would not, you know, betray his friends, something to that effect. And so I saw this, this boilerplate and I'm just like, okay, why is this here? (laughs) You know, what am I about to read? And so I get past that and then he goes into, you know, the, the very beginning, 1944, Tibbs, Mississippi. He, you know, names his parents. He names all of his siblings. He talks about the house that they lived in and, you know, the rented land and, you know, what they farmed. And he describes, you know, his family members. And as I'm reading this, I'm getting a picture of everyone and I'm getting a picture of this place and it's very moving. And I can feel, you know, the swelling of emotion, you know, in my chest. But I'm like, okay, let's keep going. So, you know, page one, page two. And then on page three, he gets to this anecdote and it's his first encounter as a small child with white supremacy. And what happened was he was with his father, Walter. They had just come from the cotton gin and had gone to the general store to get some items. And when they approached the general store, there were three white men who were sitting, you know, on the porch out front. So they walk past these men, go in, get what they need, and they come out. And when they come out, one of the men offers my father, who is, you know, a small child, um, uh, maybe four or so, offers him a cherry soda. And my father says, no, I don't want it. Because he had always been told by his parents not to drink after people. And my father's father, Walter, becomes very agitated at this point and says to my dad, uh, take it, boy, you know, in a very kind of you know, angry way. And my father says, you know, in these notes, you know, he can't understand why he's being made to take this. And at that point, I just lost it. It was just so sad to me. And it, it was just a really wrenching story. And I just thought, you know, well, what else am I about to read? And by the way, we're not even anywhere close to the assassination, which is, you know, the main wrenching story that I'm expecting to read. And so I decided that I was not ready to go through all of these 17 pages of notes. So I took those notes, I closed out the document, and I did not open it again for five years. Yeah, and that's kind of the thing about the story is it's not, you know, it's it leads with like the Martin Luther or Dr. King assassination, but that does that's not that's only a small part of it. It's such a small part and it's 
I remember that part in the book. And I, at first I was like, I was a little confused. I was like, why can't he take, like, why is he telling him to take the soda? And then I was like, oh, oh, that sucks. Like where it's because it was being offered by a white person where they were, it probably had been deemed like very insulting or something, or maybe his, his dad was worried about insulting him. And then they were just probably trying not to cause any problems or anything. I'm, I'm guessing, is that is that what you took from that as well? That's exactly right. Because, you know, the law of the land was white supremacy. And so your life could literally be in danger by, you know, insulting a white person. And so all the rules change when the racial dynamic changes. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, all the things that you thought about hygiene, all the things you thought about personal dignity and um, just your boundaries, those, all that goes out the window in this context of, you know, dealing with a white person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I just had kind of a random thought was with like, even in, in, man, this is an, this is an interesting realization. So I'm sure that a lot of like black people in the South have grown up hearing these stories, experiencing the, maybe even experiencing these things still now, not on that level, but, and then when, when there's, when there's some, I don't know how to say this, but there's some, like something that happens where a, like a white person says something to a black person where I can understand now how like a, a black person would feel like, okay, this is like racially charged because I think it's just how it was for a very long period of time when those interactions happened. It was just kind of like the status quo that whatever people that were in power in that white white supremacy society organization, whatever you want to call it, power structure, how that impacts perceived interactions in the future. Is what I'm saying making sense? I think it's making sense, but I'm not sure. <laughs> it is. No, because there's a context that goes along with these interactions today, a long context. And so, you know, that's why it's so important for all of us to kind of be aware and have this understanding, you know, of the history of the dynamics that have existed, you know, in this country. And so, yes, even today, you know, with interactions that may happen, there is a context um, behind those that can lead to issues. Yes, that makes a lot of a lot of sense. And I feel like kind of an idiot that I'm just kind of like having this realization. Uh, okay, <laughs> so I'll move on. Um, so that was that was one piece of it. So you said like, when he was born, like the whole process of putting it together when he was born, and then this interaction with your it'd be your grandfather, right? That's right. Yep. And so were there any other parts that stood out to you where you were like, you, you, were surprised or taken off guard or had like an emotional reaction to it? So much, so much. Um, hmm. It's almost, it's very difficult to choose. I understand, you know, why you were saying it. it there's just a lot of ground to cover. But yes. um, I would say the um, part where my father is basically tricked into dropping out of high school to join uh-huh the army and you know he's thinking he's going to continue high school because that's what the recruiter told him once he gets into the army and then he finds out that that is not the case i thought that was profoundly sad i thought it was also very surprising but you know the fact that he enlisted in the army so that he could pursue education you know through the gi bill and ironically this is what derails his education and not only is his you know his whole reason or not whole but you know 
his the main thrust of his reason for joining the army not only is that undermined but now you know he's put his life on the line he has now committed to service country he um you know cannot control <clears throat> where his life goes um, because of that decision. He could be sent anywhere. You know, Vietnam is now starting up, so who knows? And the fact that he still ha- has to be treated, or not has to, but is treated like a second-class citizen after having gone through all of this. You know, he's down yeah. in Georgia, you know, at, I'm trying to remember the name of the base, but in any event, he's down there. The closest town, Augusta, is segregated. So he's still treated as a second-class citizen, even though he has signed over his life in service to this country where he's being treated this way and had done so because of a lie. I I found that quite astounding. I think I phrased my my question wrong was like, were there any other? It was more like, which ones were like the biggest? That was probably like the better question. And it seems like with these interactions he had, like with the, so I can think of a few others, like that was one where the recruiter lied to him. And I guess he could have just got a voucher or something and still finished high school and then gone. And then I think when he joined the police force and there was some stuff that happened then after he he became like a like a spy. And then eventually I feel like there was some point in time where he was, it felt like he was just kind of like noticing these things and just kind of filing them away and not reacting or doing anything about it. But then I felt like Maybe when he became, when he was like hiring and recruiting for the Bureau. I think that was the right organization, right? Was it that? Um, the CIA. The CIA. Thank you. And um, then he started like doing things his way. And it felt like he was kind of standing up for the things he believed in and wanted to do like throughout this whole time. That was kind of the impression I got. Did you feel the same? I did feel the same. And I felt like I could see as time went on, you know, he he gained more freedom and more agency in what he was able to do as he went through the system. And I mean, it was really tough because there were things that happened that he knew weren't right, but there was little he could do about them without really leaving the career that he had set out to to have. Um, for example, in the police department, you know, he saw injustice, but there was nothing that he was empowered to do to really correct it. However, because he stayed the course, he ended up getting to a position, you know, at the CIA where he was able to suggest ways to recruit and retain um, uh people from marginalized communities. And he, you know, went out and recruited and found these folks that, you know, um, management at the agency was saying, you know, they couldn't find. He went out and he he did it. He found these people. And so, yes, I mean, as he stayed the course, he was able to, you know, get some measure of authority and power to make change. However, he also paid a price for that. Yeah. What, uh, what was the price that he paid for that? Well, he ended up not getting a promotion to the senior intelligence service that he, by all rights, should have gotten. And it was pretty obvious that um, he had just rocked the boat too much. Yeah, there was a point in there where he was getting like kind of written up almost for his recruiting methods, even though he was kind of he was, he was having successful results and it kind of seemed like that. I don't know if that was the beginning where the issue started or if that was just one of like the smoke signals that people weren't really approving of what he was doing. But he, when that happened, I mean, he stood up for himself. Like he was just like, no, like I'm not signing that 
report or whatever. Um, and I feel like that takes, I don't know, I guess it just takes a lot of courage to be in that point and be like, and being like, no, these are my principles and I'm going to stand for it, even if it means I'm going to be punished or lose something or, or whatnot. So I just thought that was like a, it seemed like a small thing, but I thought it was impressive. It was a strong, it was kind of like just another like exclamation point on like him kind of taking, like you said, taking agency over, over what he was doing. Exactly. It was a form of resistance. And to me, it highlights how, you know, there are different ways of resisting the status quo and trying to make change, you know, and, and these ways are going to look different depending on the context. I mean, you know, certainly you had, you know, the invaders who were very loud and they were outside of, you know, systems trying to make change that way. You had Dr. King, of course, you know, who was making change in his way. And, you know, because of that was murdered. But then, you know, my dad's story, I think, is a story of working within systems to try to make change. And of course, there's always this, you know, debate about whether these kinds of institutions, you know, government or what have you, um, can be changed from the inside. And so this shows, you know, how folks have tried to do that and how, you know, this man in particular tried to do that. And, you know, what um, the, the change that he was able to make, but also the price that he paid for that. And so there's yeah. always a price, you know, when, when folks rock the boat, whether they're within systems or outside of systems. Did he, so did he read the book? And it was done. Yeah. What did he say? He loves it. <laughs> he told me, you know, so I sent him the manuscript when it was done, you know, like the first draft. Mm -hmm. And then we had a conversation and, you know, this was really like our last formal interview. And I said, so, you know, you've read the manuscript and we've been talking about this since 2015. Is there anything else that, you know, you would like people to know about, you know, yourself, your life, the choices that you've made? And he said, everything that I want people to know is in this book. Yeah, that's got to be a very, that's going to feel really good. It does. And, and when he told me that, like that moment, I knew that no matter what happens out in the marketplace, no matter what happens with reviews or whatever, this book is a success. Yeah, for sure. Because I, I, that's what I think that's what most people want in life is to like for their parents to be proud of what they've done. Exactly. And to know that I, you know, I told the story in a way that was, you know, truthful, that was transparent that was raw you know not everything in there is pretty there there's a lot of ambiguity but that my father said this is this is right yeah what do you think is if somebody somebody reads this book what do you think like the one takeaway that you and or your dad would like i think the takeaway is um that that in in this society and I would think in, in many societies around the world, that there are many ways to make change no matter where you are, you know, it, it, in relationship to your institutions. You know, you have people who are trying to get free, whether they're working within societal institutions or outside of those institutions. You know, there are folks who are, you know, pushing in the ways that they can. And so resistance is going to look different depending on what your relationship to these institutions are. But there's always going to be a price to be paid. And that is 
the arc of history for Black people in America, and I would say the arc of, of history for all folks around the world who are trying to get free. Yeah, I think that's a really good message to share, too. It's like, it's almost like no matter where you are, whether you're in the system or without of it, with, without of it, without, outside of it, uh, you can you do what you can to make change, to like build the world that you want to live in, even if it, you know, but also understand that it's not going to be just roses and sunshine every day. There's going to be challenges along the way, but at least from, from your dad's perspective and story, it, it's worth it. Exactly. And, and I hope it prompts people to examine, you know, who are they with respect to their institutions and their society? And what does resistance look like for them? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll, I'm going to have to ask myself that later on because that's, <laughs> as I don't, I don't know the answer off the top of my head. So I, I want to ask you some questions about just like writing and storytelling in general, because I, I do think you put together something really special here. And I'm curious about like your process and how, and how you did it. So when you would sit down, like, so you started with this big Google Doc or Word Doc or whatever, and you kind of had to turn it into this into this book, which is a lot more than 17 pages long. So if we're talking from like a technical standpoint, what? how did that work? Was it you got the doc, you started doing, you had more, well, you took some time, picked it back up again, started doing interviews, asking more questions, kind of fill in the blanks. I'm, I'm just guessing, but then, and then what, what happened after that? You know, my process was probably somewhat unorthodox. So I got the document, I got the 17 pages. I read through those 17 pages, you know, once, maybe twice. And then I set it aside again, because what I wanted to do was internalize what was there but I didn't really use it as kind of a basis for writing at all. Um, and in fact, once I you know, read over it a time or two, um, I set it aside and I didn't pick it up again until really the end of the writing process when I was just making sure that I had you know, gotten things correct and also had hit the highlights. So yeah, so I you know, read through the information and then I started the interview process, um, which you know, we ended up, my dad and I ended up getting into this this rhythm where, you know, five days a week, around an hour a day, we were talking and I would have, um, you know, a topic for each day. And so I did that over a period of years. But, you know, I couldn't just take his word for, you know, the, the story. I had to corroborate as much as I could. I had to do a lot of independent research and understand something about the historical context of um, what he was telling me. So when he and I were not interviewing, I was reading everything I could get my hands on about um, Dr. King's assassination, about the sanitation strike, about the invaders and um, these um, activist movements in Memphis, um, about the Students for a Democratic Society, um, about the Central Intelligence Agency, about the FBI and uh, COINTELPRO, you know, uh, J. Edgar Hoover's counterintelligence programs of, uh, pr program of dirty tricks against activist movements. So a ton of research. In addition to that, I um, had to try to get some documents from the government. And so, you know, the obvious first place to begin would have been the Memphis Police Department in trying to get a hold of those files. However, I quickly learned that those files didn't exist because back in the 1970s, the um, police department incinerated all of its intelligence files. They burned them. And there was a lot of litigation about that. So um, the next 
best place to go was to the FBI. So I um, submitted a Freedom of Information Act request trying to get documents pertaining to my dad and his work. And um, I ended up having to go to, you know, through the National Archives to get that stuff because it had been archived. And then I ended up in a little bit of an administrative, you know, uh, I don't want to say battle because it was all very amicable. And, you know, the, the archives are great. Like those folks are, you know, consummate professionals. However, there was some dispute about whether I was entitled to um, an expedited, or excuse me, expedited uh, production of those documents. And so I was able to file an administrative appeal of their denial of this expedited production. And I won that appeal. So, you know, it's kind of a little, you know, almost legal battle <laughs> that went on in the middle of this. And so I'm constantly reading, I'm talking to my dad, and then I'm trying to, you know, mentally synthesize everything. And then, you know, I start kind of outlining, you know, what is the story, you know, outlining chronologic, what am I having to cover, and then trying to figure out from a storytelling perspective, what is going to best communicate narratively for the reader, because I don't want this to read like, you know, the encyclopedia. <laughs> I want this, you know, I don't want it to be kind of, you know, a dry set of facts. I want this to, I want it to feel like you know, you're there. I want it to feel really kind of like a novel, you know, and that's where the creative side of creative nonfiction comes in. And so I had to figure out, you know, how am I going to structure the story? And then also, how am I going to weave in my personal perspective with my dad's experiences? And so I had to really kind of figure out just structure. And so once I had kind of that outline, I just started filling in and just started writing based on, you know, what I knew and what was in the transcripts of my interviews with my dad, what was in those FBI documents, what I had researched and learned, you know, and I'm like, you know, at one point I had footnotes, which my editor was like, we don't need the footnotes. <laughs> so I took those out. But just to make sure, you know, every line I wanted to have some kind of authority for what I was saying, you know, and that's kind of the legal side coming out too, like making sure, you know, everything is like, you know, fact-checked as diligently as I was able to do. And so that was the process. And so when I wrote, I really tried to sit down and just tell the story. Like, if, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you. How would I tell this story to someone? And then going back and just, you know, double-checking the facts, weaving in, you know, uh, information from all these other sources. And that really was the process. Yeah. And there's so much to that in in the book itself. Like there's so, so many little details on I think there was, I mean, there's so many dates, names of people, people who were leaders in organizations, what was going on that year. There's just so much tied into it. It's, it's so much more than just like, and then, and then my dad went and applied for a job at the police station and went through this process. You're giving so much context along the way. You're like, here's why, here's what was going on that made this little fact important. Like you tied in the, the Emmett Till story and to like what, when your when your dad was growing up. And once you tie that in, it puts a lot more weight to what's happening. You're like, oh, that's that's when that was. That's when that was going on. So you're just like, okay, like that's actually really serious. What just happened? It seemed like a little thing, but then just not that far down the road, Emmett Till things happen. Thing happens. Well, not the thing. The Emmett Till lynching, right? Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. Yes. So you realize that just it could have just as easily happened to anybody else in that period of time once you read that little little contextual snippet and yeah so i i think you did an awesome job with with that as well 
Thank you. I was really, um, yeah, I wanted to show kind of how things like, you know, Emmett Till's murder personally affected people and show how, you know, the shadow of death was constantly hanging over Black people in this society. Yeah. And it, it goes, you know, you mentioned the J. Edgar Hoover dirty tactics where like even I can't I'm having a hard time remember his first name, Mr. Young. Um <laughs> he had when he was saying he found wires in his house in like the two thousands from before. I guess I'm assuming he lived in that house for a very long time, but but he's finding finding like wiretaps left over from those periods of time, which is is just wild to even I mean can you imagine you're just like doing some housework and you find a wiretap? Yes. Yeah. It just feels like a very surreal feeling. That was another one of those facts that I was really surprised to hear. You know, the way that he just casually spoke about how the FBI was listening to his phone calls and how even into the present day that affected his life. You know, putting in, I think it was a fence he'd put in and the folks who were digging found, you know, all these extra wires and how, you know, even when his his current wife would talk on the phone to her friend, there would be an echo on the line. And so these are just kind of the the current day effects of these tactics that were used so long ago. Yeah. And how do they install an extra line in your backyard without you knowing about it? And that's like another question I had about like, if you're on vacation, <laughs> they're like digging up your backyard or what's, what's going I'm on? I'm very curious how they would have done that. And if I recall correctly, there were some FBI folks who had taken up residence in a house, you know, down the street or in the neighborhood so mm -hmm. you know who knows maybe they came disguised as like you know workers from the phone company you know that kind of thing um but it just shows you how pervasive this was and how you know um all-encompassing you know if, if you wound up in the crosshairs of the fbi then you know you really couldn't get out of it <laughs> so yeah it sounds like especially during that time where the leader of the FBI had such a, is it, would cult of personality be accurate where his approach to things, just kind of his personal approach just kind of, kind of ran down throughout the organization where they became like obsessed over certain groups of people, activists in particular, and just kind of did everything they could to really, I don't know what the right word is, just to like undermine them, monitor them, assassinate them, whatever the, I guess, depends on the person. But it's, yeah, it was just such a, just all of it together is just, I don't know. It's just hard to wrap your head around all of it. But I have a couple questions from like a personal standpoint about from myself to you as a storyteller. So I've, I've done some writing, made some videos. I've done some, like, I wouldn't even call them documentaries. They're like YouTube videos about like different people I found inspirational that I've met around the world. Oh, I would love to also hear about your time in Kazakhstan because I've I've done tons of solo traveling and I've wanted to go like visit all this all like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, all of those all the stands and I haven't yet, but I really would love to. Um, that's probably a whole nother conversation. But um, mm -hmm. as a storyteller, what what advice do you have to somebody who whether it's they want to write a book, make a make a documentary, tell a story in some way, as someone who who did it in such a personal way like what advice do you have to somebody who is thinking about telling a story that they truly care about 
Yeah, I would say, first of all, the fact that you feel compelled to tell a particular story is a huge indication that that story is important and it does need to be told. And so just keeping, you know, in your mind that this matters and that, you know, the story that you want to tell, you know, is valuable. Um, I think that's a, a great way to start just with that fundamental understanding. And then, you know, as you set out to, you know, to document this narrative, you know, whether it's on paper paper or, you know, on a video, you know, in a documentary, what have you, I think just, um, you know, well, first of all, just, you know, from a practical perspective, working in scenes, because, you know, stories can be so big, like, I felt like this story was so big that if I thought about the whole story as one unit, it became, it, it felt overwhelming. However, if I just took it one scene at a time, then it became manageable. So I would say just, you know, break things up into scenes and just, you know, convey the story as if you were talking to a friend, tell the story. And then, you know, that will guide you into, you know, what information is needed, what information perhaps is not needed and sort of, you know, how you would shape the story. Because I feel very strongly that storytelling is something that is innate to being human. You know, human beings have always told stories, you know, and, and they've helped us to understand who we are and to understand the world and our place in it. And so I feel that we all have, you know, an innate ability to tell a story. So I would say, you know, tap into that innate ability that we have and just try to convey this story in scenes as you would be um, talking to a friend and, you know, just kind of approach it that way. Okay. So after you, after you have like the scenes put together, what's your process after that? Once you have all the scenes and you've got it all laid out, then, you know, you're essentially in the editing, you know, part of the story, which I personally love. I love having a rough draft to edit. Then you are, I would say the objective is to make it cohesive. You know, so you've got all these scenes, you want them to fit together in a way that flows. And so then just trying to organize those scenes in a way, you know, that flows best, that makes logical sense, that makes the story understandable, and that makes um, all these uh, smaller units into one cohesive unit. Yeah, there's like a there's a concept in storytelling where it's like you might understand it in your head and be able to visualize it, but the other person has to be able to see it in a similar way that you do. And I think that's kind of what you're saying is like kind of cut down all the all out all the extra stuff and, and make sure it's easy to understand. Like edit it into something that's painting the same picture that you you want them to receive. That's exactly right. And you know, I actually have found you know, visual media to be really instructive in, you know, telling a written story because, you know, oftentimes I'll look at a painting and, you know, the painting isn't necessarily in fine photographic detail. There'll be a suggestion of a chair or a door or a shadow, you know, and just the way that the light, you know, hits particular objects. You're given, you know, a scene is presented but you don't have to have every little minute detail. And in fact, it might it will take away from the overall picture if there's, you know, too much or if there isn't enough. So, you know, just figuring out how to paint the scene in a way that's, you know, conveying, you know, the picture you want to convey, but, you know, not necessarily having every little detail. Sometimes you just need a sketch or um, a contour. And that's really going to depend, you know, very much on what the particular story is, but, you know, just kind of figuring out how to paint those scenes for the reader. Yeah. There's a, I'm trying to think of who the author is. 
but they they try not to use a lot of names for places or for characters because they find that if you say like this is jeff then it's like you kind of know like you can maybe you know someone named jeff so now you are associating their name with the character so it's more like they try to leave it a little more vague so you can kind of they let the reader use their imagination. They like basically give them a space to use their imagination within the story. So instead of saying like he was five eleven with a bow tie and you know jeans and all this stuff, it's like leaving a little room for imagination. I think it's it's all just an, it's like art though, right? It's like everybody kind of does it a little bit differently. And as long as the reader gets out of it what you're intending, or maybe and maybe or maybe not, maybe it's something where you kind of leave it up to the reader to to decide for themselves what the what the meaning of it is. Yeah, I think writing, you know, or telling a narrative in any way, it's very much a two-way conversation, or I think that the most effective writing is a two-way conversation. So, you know, as you said, leaving room for the reader, you know, their imagination, I think is very important because I think that, you know, as the reader is, you know, taking in a narrative, you know, they're bringing something to that process. And I think just leaving room for that dialogue between, you know, text and reader is very important. Yeah, for sure. What would you say to somebody who is, you know, they're they have the story, they want to tell it, maybe they're trying to find the courage to to do it. Like what would you tell someone that's, you know, they they have it in their head, maybe they have it on paper and they're just looking for that that little burst of courage or motivation to to get it started or get it done. What would you say to them? Well, I would say, you know, and this kind of goes back to that fundamental idea of if you feel compelled to tell a story, that means that that story matters. And it could very much be the case that if you don't tell it, it won't get told. And a story that doesn't get told disappears. It's lost. And the idea of losing a story, to me, I find very tragic. And so I would say to that person, you know, you could be the person who ensures that this story survives and is preserved. And if you don't tell that story, you know, will it disappear from the world? Yeah. It's almost the exercise of, you know, imagine imagine a world where this story is told and does and does get picked up and imagine the impact it could have on some people. And then now imagine a world without it. Like which one is more meaningful to you? That's right. And you never know where a story will go. You know, your story could inspire someone to tell something else, which inspires something else. And that whole chain goes away if your story mm-hmm. doesn't exist. That's a that's a really good point. Cause it's yeah, it's it's what was that movie? It's like butterfly effect or something like that. I feel like that was such an old movie, but or not not that old, like in the 90s, early 2000s, or no, not 90s, 2000s, 2010s. Um, but yeah, it's like if you tell your story and the impact it has could could ripple, you know, and that you don't really know until you try either because it could right. morph into something completely different. I'm sure, I'm sure when you started this book, you probably didn't imagine that this would be the exact final thing. And maybe you didn't even know it was going to be a book when you started. You were just like, you just wanted to know what happened. Yeah, I, um, you know, it's interesting. And I look back on this and think, gosh, perhaps this was naivete. But when I initially asked my dad, you know, or told him that I wanted to know his story, I, at the same time, had this idea that it would be a book. You know, in the sense that I thought whatever he tells me, you know, good or bad or indifferent, it needs to be documented. Um, However, you're right. I mean, I never imagined that it would turn out to be 
that book with that cover and I mean, even the title of it and the way that it came together. You know, I mean, this is my first book. It's, this is my debut book. And so, and I'm not a historian, you know, I hadn't, you know, I didn't have like other, I had some publications under my belt, but no, you know, long form narratives in this way. Yeah. It, it feels miraculous. Yeah, I think you did a very good job. I mean, I read a lot of books and I'm not an expert on writing or anything, but just from all the stuff that I, I read, I just, there's some things you read and you can tell whoever wrote them cared a lot. And it feels like you definitely, you cared a lot about this book and put a lot of effort into it. So it's, it's a very good book. And I hope whoever you are listening that you decide to check it out. So what's your number two book? What's your next book going to be? <laughs> My next book, I am working on a novel as we speak, and I'm very excited about it. It is also set in Memphis. As you can see, Memphis is a place that haunts me. <laughs> and so, um, and it's interesting because even though it is, you know, it's fiction, it's a novel, I feel that there is some overlap with the kneeling man and kind of the context of that. And so I am telling the story of a um, black woman who is a rookie reporter at a Memphis newspaper. And I'm hoping to kind of, you know, through her experience and, and through kind of the narrative that happens in the scenes that unfold, I'm hoping to tell the story of, you know, the rise and the fall of print journalism and the consequences of that and the implications, you know, not only for, um, you know, a, a city, but also for democracy. Yeah. Well, you'll have to let me know when it's done and you can come do a round two and then we can talk about your experience writing that book as well. I'm sure it'll be, I'm sure it'll be great. And I look forward to, to checking it out. Oh, I appreciate that. Absolutely. Yeah. So I want to be respectful of your time. So before we wrap up, though, is there any requests, any last words of wisdom, anything you'd like to, to leave, leave our listeners with today? Well, I would say um, to the listeners, just remember that your stories matter. Do not be afraid to delve into them and preserve them. And I would say particularly with respect to, you know, our elders, you know, in our community, you know, whether it's your relatives or people that you know, I think it's very important to, you know, to gather their stories. And, you know, I think that uh, you will probably be amazed and, you know, astounded by, you know, the things that they've seen and experienced. And so, you know, to the extent that you can preserve those stories by recording them or writing them down, I think that's very important. Yeah, I think that's such, I don't, I cannot emphasize that point enough because like my, I mentioned earlier, my grandma just passed away, but she documented everything. Like she, when my grandpa was alive, she wrote down his life history. And then she wrote down her own life history. And when her mom was alive, she wrote down her life history. So we have, I get when she gave them to us when I was like 19, I was like, oh, who cares? You know, <laughs> and, then, and then now I'm 35 and I'm like, they're just like precious documents that I'm so glad that she took the time to put together. It's really, it's just an interest. You almost get to like travel back in time and see things from the perspective of a relative who maybe isn't here anymore or won't be here in the future. So I think it's so important to, to capture those stories too. That's so wonderful and so beautiful that you have that. And you're right. That is, that's priceless. You know, there was a writer, a famous writer um, who said that, you know, we are trying to capture things that are not Googleable. So these types of stories are not Googleable. So yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's, that's really precious that you, you know, that, that those, those stories and those notes that you have. Yeah. And I would encourage everyone interview your grandparents while they're still around. <laughs> get, yes. get this, get these stories. Cause I mean, I, I don't know if 
it sounds like maybe your parents were the same way when you were younger. They didn't really, you didn't ask a lot of questions and they didn't tell you much. Then when you're older and you know what questions to ask, you just never know what you're going to find. That's right. And then, you know, I think it's also a generational thing where, you know, the previous generations just did not talk about so much. And sometimes it's like pulling teeth to get certain information. But I just think, you know, if you just start off with, um, you know, having them tell you something, you know, fun for them to talk about, you know, they're, you know, fun, funny memories and things like that, yeah. and just kind of easing into it, I think that can help people open up. Yeah, I have on my phone from years ago, I don't know why I was doing this. But I remember asking my grandparents, like, what was what was your first date like with grandpa or grandma? And then they're just like, oh, God, here we go. <laughs> that is a great um, opener. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because <laughs> their reaction says it all. And it's it's just it's just also entertaining, too, because you get to laugh, laugh at their discomfort a little bit, which is which is always fun. <laughs> yes. Cool. Well, I will I will wrap things up here, Lita. And I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. I think this was a really fun interview. I got to learn a lot about your dad, plus your own creative process. And I just want to say thanks for taking the time today. You are very welcome. And thanks to you for having me and uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about this book. And I truly appreciate it.